Namo etasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Buddhang damang sangang namasami So in the last um, week or so I've had conversations with a number of people, um, uh, leaders of different communities, some here in the States and some in Australia. And one of the topic of, of interest at the particular moment with some of the people I've been speaking to is uh, negotiating skillful communication in their communities. And one of the, one of the women that I spoke to is um, one of the founding... Uh, founding members of a community in Australia. I spent six weeks with her. And I was asking her about the history of her community when I stayed with her uh, a number of years ago. And she was saying, you know, they, they started the community with very idealistic principles. They were in their 30s, and they purchased a piece of land, and they decided they were going to come together and um, build green houses and have... Uh, a community that was based on ecological and sustainable principles, but it was based also on awakening. So they had a little retreat center up on a ridge, and they had a little meditation hall in the community itself, and all the houses were owner-designed and built, and they didn't have any uh, wastewater systems. They all had composting toilets, and they had this magnificent organic garden, and they planted a bunch of fruit trees. So it was a um, a community that supported they worked on it but it helped bring some of the food and the vegetables and the fruit and they, they had uh, cattle there that they, and milk cows that they would milk and then they made cheese and butter from and so you know it was a very lovely had a very lovely feeling to a very lovely idea well, ideals. and after about 10 years of living in the community they were at each other's throats about um power and issues and complexity and decision making and it was so uh, unsettling that my friend said that you know either she needed to get some skills in learning how to deal with conflict or she had to leave because it was it was not sustainable it was not bearable so she did she trained as a conflict resolution mediator and brought some more skills into her own community and when I was there, and even though I was only there for six weeks, I was impressed. You know, while I was there, there was a, an issue that arose within the community that most communities would have completely fractured around. And they were able to hold it in a way where they were still able to honor each other's um, positions and differences, but not um, fragment against the, the need to hold together as a community that worked together, that valued each other, that respected each other. And so, you know, in the years that I've lived in community myself, I've also seen that, you know, this is, this is actually not an insignificant thing to be able to manage. And tonight, when we were reading through the Mangala Sutta, the Mangala Sutta is the highest blessings, and it starts with the simplest or most or mundane ones, which is, you know, just to not hang out with people who are fools, you know, and it moves all the way up to the most highly exalted realization. 
So we've got this whole list of a gradated path of what is useful to cultivate in order to support our realization. And third from the last of these categories is learning how to accept one's faults. Okay? So it's like, you know, this the way this is is uh, listed is this whole range of skills and the gradation of, of what is needed. This process of learning how to accept one's faults, learning to be patient, learning how to uh, negotiate things which are difficult is actually a, a highly sophisticated and not um, easy, necessarily easily thing to master. And yet when we're living in communities, when we're living in families, when we're living uh, or working in work environments, you know, having conflict is something that absolutely we have to navigate. So, you know, because of this topic has arisen in the last little while with some of the people that I've been speaking with, I thought that I'd talk about it a little bit and reflect on it and, and see if there's a way that we can consider how we use speech in our own daily lives and the way that it affects the people around us. So within the Buddhist teachings, there's a whole big legacy of suttas which give instruction on how to contemplate on the mind and ways of living one's life in a way which is skillful. And the the dispensation of the Buddha is considered the, the Dhamma Vinaya, the truth and the thread of conduct that holds us together. So it's not just, you know, the ultimate teachings. And it's not just the kind of coded conduct and structures and uh, integrity. It's the two of them that go together. And when we're looking at something as rich as the, as the topic of speech, particularly around conflict, then it's really important to, to bring these two together. So the basic guidelines around speech is you know not to say something which is untrue not to say something which is harsh not to speak in a way which is divisive and not to talk about things which are slanderous or useless prattle but within that there's a whole huge kind of range of well how do you actually negotiate the rough stuff you know how do you do it how do you do it in a way that it supports relaxation, confidence, trust, respect, and harmony? So the Buddha laid out a number of guidelines. And the five guidelines is, is, is that is it true or is it false what one's saying? Is it the right time or the wrong time? Is one speaking with harshness or with gentleness? Do you have the best interest of the other people in your heart? And are you also somebody who does these things yourself? Or are you blameless? So as kind of guidelines to look at it, it sets up a situation where we're not only looking at being able to kind of discharge or dump, because certainly there are many things that we can say which are true, but they're not helpful. Or we can say something that's true, but it's not the right time. 
we can say something that's true, but the result is is that it'll split people apart rather than increase their abilities to live in harmony and cooperate and trust and respect each other. So the the trick then is, or the skill then is, is, is that in addition to saying things which are true, is to begin to reflect on all of these other factors that support being able to communicate in a way where one needs is able to say what one needs to say, but do it in a way that maximizes the ability to be able to hear it from the other side. Now, one of the things which I noticed living in a community of sisters is that our perceptivity levels were quite a bit higher than our skill in being able to communicate them for many, many, many years. So we would see things that were amiss or wrong or discordant or whatever, but our ability to say it in a way that actually could land where a person wouldn't completely freak took probably two decades longer than our ability to just notice things were amiss. So there was like a 20-year catch-up time of learning how to develop the skill and the way of creating the safety for people to relax and feel genuinely feel you had your best interest at heart so that if you needed to say something which is pointed or difficult or challenging or possibly confronting their whole system wouldn't seize up in the kind of contraction against negative feedback which so often happens and not be able to hear what was said. And so what I observed with the community of sisters that I lived with and what I observed with this community that I spent some time with in Australia was it wasn't the truth that was so important. What was so important was to create a fabric of trust so that when one had something to say that was difficult, the message that was continuously being offered was the sense of trust and respect and an interest in the other person's highest welfare as one's motivation. And then when that was perceived by the person receiving the feedback, the chances were that it was a little bit more likely that they could hear what was being said. Not guaranteed. Nothing's guaranteed, but a little bit more likely. And for us to learn how to create the structure or the, or the holding or the safety where people felt that was what took us such a long time to figure out. You know, it just took us a really, really long time to figure it out. And so I remember, you know, when I was a young nun, you know, a senior nun would get something would upset her. And she would rally all the sisters and she would just, you know, tell us all what she thought was wrong. And we would go, <laughs> and even if what she had to say had truth in it, because these other things weren't there, the reaction was of not hearing what she had to say, reactivity around what she had to say, an inability to reflect on what she had to say, and recoiling into our positions of for and against. As we got more skilled as a community to collectively hold the space so that we could create that what was needed, 
then we also learned how to give reflections in a way where first there was a kind of setting the tone or setting the ground where we were honoring the, the good qualities in each other. And as we were able to touch that, it helped us to relax and find our own center. And then when we had something difficult to say, we were coming from our own center rather than from a tightness or a reactivity towards uh, a delivery of something that just didn't work. Now, as skilled as we got, there were often times still that things were delivered in ways that weren't very helpful or, you know, were not necessarily coming from the right space. And so in addition to learning how to deliver feedback in a way that maximized the possibility to be able to receive it, we also need to learn how to receive feedback in a way where we were working with our own reactivity and not blaming the other person for it. And so one of the things that was really important to learn was to be able to distill the truth of what was being said independent of the way it was being delivered. And to have the humility and the willingness to accept responsibility for what one's own participation in this had been. Now, when there is a situation which is a conflict, it's very interesting that the, the, the mind tends to go to what's wrong. And the wronging is sometimes out there. It's an out there. The wronging is out there. But when we start with a conflict by taking responsibility for how one has contributed to it, then it immediately changes the context and gives everybody else the permission and the possibility of doing the same thing. And when everybody is taking responsibility for their contribution to something which has gone funny, there's less wronging And there is more holding and reflecting on where we're at, how we got here, and what we need to do in order to get out of this mess. But it takes a kind of, well, it takes experience and recognizing of what happens when we've done it wrong and the remembering that any time we're giving negative feedback, it's actually really difficult to hear it. And so we need to kind of massage the the field to support being able to receive it in a skillful way. Now, I was involved in some things that happened last year and myself. And, uh, you know, I'd written some... I had some ideas of some communications that needed to happen, and I wasn't entirely sure that they were going to happen. So I wrote these emails about, okay, if, the, if I wasn't actually able to meet with these people and talk with them directly, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, then I was going to send them these emails that was effectively going to be able to tell them the things that I needed to tell them, but in an email rather than in person. And I had the foresight to share my emails with a number of other people before I sent them. And one person, who I considered a sound advisor, he said, alarm bells, alarm bells, alarm bells, don't send these emails. Because this communication, there's no way this communication is going to have an effective, wholesome result in an email. It's not going to work. 
You need to have this communication in person. And if you're not going to be able to have this communication in person, then don't have the communication. Because there's very easy ability to fixate on language and not feel the warmth or the tenderness or the connection or the, the concern. And from the language, then have a kind of a reaction to what one thinks is being said without their having a sense of really the context in which this is all happening. And, you know, even after the experience that I'd had, certainly I was willing to have the conversation, but I didn't realize how absolutely critical it was to have the conversation. That it was, like, so important that there was absolutely no way that it would have been possible to communicate this in any other form rather than in person. And so I was grateful that somebody kind of intervened and said, this is not going to work. You know, you can't do this in an email. Because one thinks if one just is able to articulate what one needs to say in a way that feels clear to oneself, that that's good enough. But one forgets what happens to the other person on the receiving end when they get something which has some level of feedback which is about something that they did which could have been done better or differently or caused some concern or caused some um, agitation or would have left somebody else feeling left out or hurt or whatever. So one is in tune with one's own need to communicate without putting oneself in the other person's shoes of what it's going to feel like to hear that. So when we come back to the Buddha's instructions to say what's true, not what's false, so that means not what one's heard, but what one knows, okay? To speak at the right time rather than at the wrong time. So to make sure that everyone is prepared to actually process this conversation at this particular time, you know? To speak in a way where one what is saying is not harsh, but kind and gentle and respectful and to check out one's motivation that the reason why one is speaking to this person in front of you is because you have their best interest in your heart and so when a person person feels metta for them that's very different than when they don't And so, you know, when a person feels that level of care and connection, what can be spoken in that can be very confronting, but it lands in a very different way. And then to consider for oneself, you know, do I do this? You know, am I asking somebody else to reflect on behavior that I myself do as well, you know? So, you know, there are certainly plenty of times, and then there is uh, where, you know, I wouldn't have been able to say that I was completely blameless, or I wasn't completely free of anger when I was needing to talk to somebody. 
you know, sometimes things happen and it's just very, there's a lot of heat in it and it takes a while for it to settle and one needs to talk about it before all the heat has completely dissolved from the situation. But if I was speaking about it and taking responsibility for the fact that I still hadn't completely cooled out around it, there was still some heat that I felt myself around it, but that it was important to talk about it because of this, that, and this reason, then I wasn't, it was making it a little bit more, taking a little bit more responsibility for my participation in what was unfolding in that conversation. Rather than just put it out there and expect the other person to understand and know all of those pieces of information. It's really important to work with communication. You know, we live in relationship. We're not separate from relationship. You know, and even when we are living as celibates, you know, the interdependence of the way that we live insists upon a profound connection with a large number of people on many different levels. So it's not the level of um, physical intimacy. It's the level of connectivity that uh, creates the, the, the need for harmony to grow and to build and to be able to negotiate things which are challenging. So to deliver feedback, one needs to be careful how one does that. And I would, you know, I would say probably in person is a lot better. So we have this kind of um, weird society where we're under an enormous amount of pressure and we have about four times as many things to do in a day as is humanly possible to actually negotiate. And so we have a sense, which is partly based on the situation that we're in, we have to get it done because of this, that, and the next. And there are these other things that if we don't do this now, then there are going to be these other consequences that will happen. And because we don't have the ability to actually meet the people face-to-face right now or tomorrow, then we think, well, the email will suffice. Because we can't think of another thing that we can do. But I would, you know, suggest that, well, maybe this is an opportunity to put a question mark around that. You know, maybe what we can do is just alert the fact that we need to talk and then see if we can find priority to actually sit down and talk in person. Or certainly, you know, what would be better is to speak to people on the telephone. You know, that's easier. Because at least you can hear tones, you know. You can get qualities, you can stop, you can interject, you can ask questions and get feedback. You know, you can check in, you know. So those kinds of things support a sense of the possibility that Something can be discussed in a way which might be challenging. And there might be a little bit more possible way of it landing where there's more ability to process it rather than just more reactivity from it. Now, one of the um, things that I've also learned is is, is that, you know, the conditioning that I have is, is that basically that I'm supposed to be superhuman at all times and be available for all people under all circumstances. You know, that's sort of like the bottom line assumption that I have kind of operating. (laughs) And I realize that, well, actually, uh, it's rather not that way most of the time. And there certainly have been situations where, you know, people have gotten angry at me in ways where I've just felt 
gutted, you know. I felt like kind of decimated by it. And not only have I physically been felt decimated by it, but it felt like the trust that I had with the other person had been damaged. And so, you know, there's a kind of pressure, well, let's get together and talk about it and sort it all out. But I needed time to reconnect with my own ground internally, and I needed time in order to feel the sense of trust and respect where I could hold this person in that light before I had the capacity to open up what had happened and talk about it. And so even if it took a longer time than the other person felt was what was needed in order to resolve it quickly, I had to stay true with what I was actually up to, you know. And if I wasn't ready to say, I'm not ready yet, I can't do it just now, I need more time. Because if I try and resolve something when I'm still feeling the woundedness of having my trust been fractured, then my own capacity for holding ground in that conversation is greatly diminished. And the possibility of further fracturing is greater. A further dismantling trust is greater. So again, just being able to know where I was at, what, what I was up to, and what I needed in order to move forward, particularly when things were very, very hurtful, incredibly hurtful. You know. So it's a skill, you know. And it doesn't come in grade school. And we don't learn it in textbooks. You know? And, and yet, the more we're able to learn how to navigate conflict in a way where everybody's needs get met, then the more the fabric of trust of the community can grow. And that fabric of trust is something which is so incredibly important because it's the kind of thing that supports us to relax in our own practice. It's like, it is the most valuable asset that a community has. And so, you know, sometimes things come up and they get activated, people get activated, and it really doesn't matter how much is needed in order to kind of come back and see what one can do to reestablish trust and connection. Because when that's there, you've got something which is strong and it can hold and it can support. And when you don't have that there, you've got almost nothing. You know? So it's worth the work required. Even if it requires entering territory that most of us would prefer not go to if we had any choice. So it's an interesting thing when we're sitting together in a room full of people when there's been some kind of a conflict. And as a facilitator or as a leader, you know, one starts with, you know, my apology. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I might not have been as sensitive as I could have been. Or I might not have done something in the time frame work that would have eased some of the pressure in this circumstance. Or I'm sorry that, you know... There's so much pain in this situation. 
And then that just really helps open up the possibility that everybody else can take their little bit of responsibility. And what a different situation that is from people who are doing something different. So that works in our context. I am remembering a story of Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Mun was a... Uh, an enlightened forest meditation master and he asked his monks not to dig in a well because the well was incredibly dangerous it was unsupported and it was made out of sand and if they had dug in the well it could have collapsed and somebody could have been injured or killed and somebody dug in the well and he knew about it nobody told him but he knew about it and and so you know he waited uh, because they, you know, something had happened and they were all uh, frightened of the repercussions of having gone against the teacher's word. You know, so they were all a little bit tight and tense and waiting, just kind of waiting for kind of what was going to be the consequence of having done deliberately what the teacher had asked them not to do. And so the Ajahn Man waited, I think, several weeks until they kind of relaxed and had more confidence and had more um, sense of ease and well-being in themselves. And when they had gotten back to that place of ease and well-being in themselves, then he, he admonished them in a ferocious way, which is not the same as him taking responsibility for everything that was going on but of really letting them know that it was completely unacceptable for them to go against his word in that kind of a way. And that it wouldn't work for them to continue in a relationship with him if they wouldn't trust him in that way. But that's a different situation because in that circumstance you had somebody who was completely awake and who was categorically designated as the teacher of that community and they were all there because their relationship with him was of disciple it's very rare in our contemporary society in a democratic situation where we have a setup where somebody has that unquestioned authority and respect by everybody who's in the group so we need to negotiate and work things differently. Even if sometimes it's clear that that kind of behavior is just not going to work, it's not acceptable. The way we need to negotiate that, communicate that, support people to come to a different understanding is different than when the authority is so clearly defined and accepted. And that's part of our challenge in our contemporary society is finding skillful ways that work with the kind of group dynamics that exist today. So perhaps I'll close here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.